That could be life in the past lane or life in the past lane, but it is life in the past lane. <laughs> Hebrews 6, 1 to 6. Excellent. Good morning. Give me the next slide, please. How many of you have ever eaten lobster? Not the prepared lobster, right? But the whole lobster. How many of you have ever watched someone eat a whole lobster? How many of you have been disgusted watching someone eat a whole lobster? It's messy, it's messy business, eating lobster. If it's not done right, you can miss out on good lobster meat. If you crack the claw open too rough, you smash the claw pieces into the claw meat and end up crunching little pieces while eating. To properly eat the tail, you need to break it away from the body just right or you may leave some good meat behind. Or worse, you could end up grabbing some of the nasty green stuff just behind the tail. Also, there is the lobster legs. Don't leave those. There's meat to be had in there. You must carefully remove them and suck the meat out, almost like a straw. We need to treat our text in Hebrews like that. There has been so much written about these texts. It can get very messy. Especially verses 4 to 6, which we will deal with next week. There's so much more going on there than can a Christian lose his or her salvation. By really going hard after certain portions, we can overdo it and end up trying to digest bits that crunch or that don't taste right theologically. And if we gloss over certain details, we miss some tasty doctrinal meat that could be sucked out of the text if we give it the attention due. And I run the risk of you looking at me in disgust over the way I go at it or the conclusions I arrive at. But my goal is a higher, accurate contemplation of Jesus so that we avoid the pitfalls that this ancient audience was warned of. The Christians to whom this letter was written had come out of Judaism. Before their conversion to Christ, they lived under the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. They had not yet, though, made a complete break with that Old Covenant understanding of God and were in danger of falling back into the Old Covenant way of attempting to relate to God. This was impossible. The Old Covenant was only in place until the time that Christ would come and make the Old Covenant obsolete. Done away with. Because the Old Covenant was inferior. The Old Covenant, with its rituals and practices, were a reminder of the people's separation from God. For example, to enter the Holy of Holies meant death. Except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
This is the key to rightly understanding the original meaning of the text we are dealing with. The letter to the Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ over everything theological and covenantal prior to his incarnation. Fail to observe that key point and you will make an absolute mess out of the epistle to the Hebrews. The Hebrews to whom this letter was written were not in awestruck wonder of Christ. Add that next slide, please. This is a picture of a butterfly emerging from its chrysalis. A caterpillar forms a chrysalis around itself at a certain point in its life cycle, and in that, its transformation to the stage of butterfly takes place. In this image, somewhat photoshopped with a zipper, I don't think a chrysalis comes with a zipper. The butterfly is in fact stuck at its point of emergence from that chrysalis. From the website sciencing.com we read, When a butterfly is ready to emerge, it should take just a few moments for the animal to break free and spread its wings. If you notice that some are taking longer, possibly because they're weaker and they should be or have suffered from a disease, you might be able to help. If you see one that has struggled to emerge for more than 15 minutes, try to gently make the hole of the chrysalis bigger so that the butterfly doesn't have to work so hard. Confirm that the chrysalis is firmly planted to a high spot on its stick and then carefully use a tweezer or a small pin to slit the chrysalis. Take care not to get the sharp edge of the instrument anywhere near the butterfly's wings. Cut the slit gradually, making sure that you don't split it completely since the butterfly still needs to struggle a bit toward the end so it can spread its wings rather than fall straight to the ground. It's helpful to think of the recipients of this letter as those who are, in a sense, stuck in the emergence from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The writer of the epistle, whoever it was, needed to help make that transition complete, and he needed to do so carefully, and with that same surgical skill, making sure he doesn't get too close to those wings. At the same time, he knows that they need to struggle a bit so that they can spread their new covenant wings and not fall straight to the ground. That's what's going on in this chapter. And the three verses prior to it, as we shall see, I cannot overstate that this is the hermeneutical key to getting this scripture correct and benefiting by it. Which is to say, seeing Jesus and being consumed with him and by him. We need a quick but meaningful review of chapters 1 to 5, where we see a spiritually muscular effort by the writer to exalt Christ. Because what's missing in the lives of the people is Christ exalted above all else. If you've ever attended a firework display around the 4th of July, you witnessed a slow 
progressively impressive pyrotechnic display. Each explosion is a little louder and more colorful and more intricately designed than the one before it. The exhibition ends with an assault on the senses. Non-stop explosions and colors and patterns in the final sonic boom to finish it off. The writer to the Hebrews begins with an assault on the senses. The ooh and the ah in the sonic boom as he describes Christ. Could we have the next slide, please? Hebrews chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the way the writer begins. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What can possibly be said to add to such a description? Unless... Of course, the hearers, who we will see have grown dull of hearing, are incapable of grasping the humongous implications for life those truths hold. Throughout the text of chapters 1 and 2, the writer teaches that Jesus is greater than any angel. No complete understanding of angels an ancient Jewish understanding is necessary. By stating Jesus' supremacy over angels, we get a sense of Jewish angelology. They must have been quite impressive and highly functioning by God's design to minister to Him. Jesus is greater. He became one of us. Angels have never been incarnated, so they could never substitute for man in that way. Angels cannot taste death. And so, they are inferior to Jesus. They are inferior to Jesus because they cannot taste death. For through death, Jesus defeated the devil who had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 Since angels cannot die, they cannot defeat death. In chapter 2, we also encounter a warning, the first of many, about drifting away from God. To miss the supremacy of Christ is to become unattached to the anchor of our souls. They were in possible danger. Jesus is greater than Moses. This is the message of chapter 3. Moses was everything to the old covenant people of Israel. Moses led the exodus out of Egypt. Jesus leads the exodus out of death and sin, and into the promised land of God's eternal presence. In the days of Moses, many died in the wilderness because of unbelief. There is a reminder and a caution to this new covenant community. Next slide, please. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. Next slide, please. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. To these Hebrew readers, Sabbath was the sign of the covenant God made with Moses and the Israelites, still fresh in their remembering. To keep the Sabbath was to keep the covenant. There is no ongoing command to to observe Sabbath in the New Covenant. But there is the subject that Sabbath was hinting at. The true meaning of New Covenant Sabbath is, Ah, this is the way life should be. From God's perspective and from ours, God ruling and dwelling among His people, and we full of joy and excitement and fear of the Lord. Brendan Manning reminds us that, quote, the biblical meaning of the fear of the Lord is silent wonder, radical amazement, affectionate awe at the infinite goodness of God. It doesn't mean being afraid of God. Only in Christ is this possible. Fear can lead to avoidance. Amazement and wonder lead to engagement. In this chapter... Jesus, for the first time, is referred to as Great High Priest. This is covenant terminology. The Old Covenant featured a High Priest. Jesus is referred to as a Great High Priest, a title never used of anyone in Old Covenant sacrificial terminology. In chapter 5, we encounter Jesus learning obedience through suffering. And... Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the first of several mentions of an Old Testament character known as Melchizedek. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, first appearing in Scripture in an encounter with Abram in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek preceded the Mosaic Aaronic priesthood and was a greater priest. Like him, Jesus is a greater priest than the old covenant priests because a greater covenant requires a greater priest. Jesus, as great high priest, is the source of eternal salvation. With these summary thoughts fresh in our understanding, we can better grasp the text of chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It begins with an immediate reference to, Therefore which is in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. So we'll have the next slide, which is Hebrews chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, which gives us what we need to know is the therefore of 6, verse 1. So when 6, verse 1 says, therefore, it's really going back probably beyond chapter 11, uh, verse 11 of chapter 5, but at least verse 11 of chapter 5 through 14, where we read, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
You need milk, the author says, but you're going to get solid food because milk isn't enough. It won't do you any good. You need a towering apprehension of Jesus. You need to know about his high priesthood. And in chapters 7 to 9, which we won't touch really, our author will truly serve that up for them. In effect, he writes, you need to know more of what has happened in the promised new covenant of God. You can't understand the new covenant by living as if you're still under the old covenant or by mixing the two covenants together. You can't exalt Christ by living according to a covenant in which Christ is hidden or at least partially hidden. He must be front and center. You need to leave life in the past lane, as it were. Now naturally, as we proceed through our study, we're going to contemplate what is the relevance of this epistle to the church today. And I dare say there is no exact parallel. Because coming out of the Mosaic Covenant is a uniquely first century Jewish experience. Perhaps one that would still apply to such as continued to come out of the Mosaic experience through the early centuries of the church. But you and I were never under the Mosaic Covenant. Not that we don't benefit by the experience of God's people that were, we do. If your religious experience in the past was one of devout Roman Catholicism, there are perhaps rituals and ceremonies and sacramental priesthood that have echoes of the Mosaic Law. And you may relate at some level, owing to the many layers in Roman Catholicism which must be peeled back to get at Jesus as Scripture fully presents Him. And if so, bless the Lord. But each of us can certainly, certainly reflect on the question, what do I know? What do I know about Jesus as my great high priest? For our minds are being renewed by the Holy Spirit through this inspired text to reveal the beauty and glory of Christ and his great high priestly ministry to God on our behalf. And you should prayerfully consider attendance at our Sunday morning series in this letter to maximize the potential of such studied reflection. As our brother this morning pointed out, Rob Caprera was teaching on testimony and its role and place in the Christian life. And he spoke much and well about the importance of knowing, of knowing. A, a letter like Hebrews isn't something you can open up in the middle of and profit by if you don't have this grasp. So, prayerfully consider that. Can we have the next slide, which is our main text? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and obstruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. The emphasis of chapter 6, verse 1, must be on the word elementary. For the six things that follow, repentance, faith toward God, 
instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments, they're all doctrines that find their perfect expression and ultimate significance in Christ. The author is not saying forget about these things. He's not saying leave these doctrines. And, by the way, these six doctrines are not, as some would have them, be, quote, basic Christian doctrine that we need to move beyond. Rather, in keeping with what I reminded you is the key to understanding these texts, the author is challenging the readers to move beyond the old covenant limitation of these doctrines. For each of these doctrines are well attested to throughout the Old Testament and therefore part of the Old Covenant. And each of these doctrines mentioned here, if we recall the butterfly, was a caterpillar phase in God's plan to reveal and sum up all things in Christ, finally making Jesus all in all. And that is why the author says, not laying again a foundation of this and that doctrine. The Old Covenant was foundational to the New the, the concern that these Hebrews move on to maturity cannot be addressed by continuing to lay that same foundational understanding. Remember that for next week as well. You'll need it. The concern that these Hebrews move on to maturity cannot be addressed by continuing to lay again that same foundation and that same understanding of the doctrines that we're dealing with. There's nothing about the doctrine of resurrection and eternal judgment that we need to just sort of leave behind. Most translations of 6.1 read something like, let us leave or leave. A few having offer having left, so that the passage reads, therefore having left the elementary doctrine of Christ, which is what these recipients would be doing having left the old covenant and now being born again partakers of the new. Therefore having left the elementary doctrine of Christ, By the way, keep in mind the difference between Jesus and Christ. Christ is understood throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah was coming. The Anointed was coming. Okay? But what these people need to do is put sort of the Jesus in the Christ, which they haven't fully done yet. They don't quite have Jesus in the Christ. In chapter 8, verses 8 and 13 of this letter, we read the following as the author quotes the Old Testament Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then verse 13, no longer quoting the Old Testament, he writes, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. To get out of life in the past lane. Each of these six elementary doctrines doctrines find their zenith in the full-bodied doctrine of the supremacy of Jesus the Christ that every New Testament author was, ex- was inspired to expound on. Let's briefly look at each one as they are in the Old Covenant and how they are incarnate in Jesus right here in this letter to the Hebrews. We don't need to go outside this letter to the Hebrews to find out what he's talking about, though we could. But since the author is going to go on to do that and the original audience will get the benefit of it. Let's do the same. The Old Testament is filled with instruction to repent from dead works. To repent from works that lead to death. Indeed, the Old Covenant, breaking the covenant commandments, resulted in curses from God. 
John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministry with the call to repentance. We see Jesus in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. What is this doctrine in Christ? For if the, goat, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead work to serve the living God? The rituals of, I'm sorry, the Jews were, were a, a monotheistic people. They were really the first monotheistic people. The first ones to know there's only one God. Their faith was to be in that God who revealed himself as the one true God. For example, the prophet Habakkuk wrote, speaking for God, my righteous one shall live by faith. This faith looks forward to the righteousness of God that is found only in Christ. Hebrews 12, 1-2 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the, endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of God. The rituals of the ancient people of God were replete with ceremonial washings of all kinds. Some translations regrettably have baptisms here in the place of washings. Regrettably, because this only draws attention away from our interpretive key, which is that these Hebrews are still hung up on the Old Testament practices as this letter attests to repeatedly and with consistent clarity. We look unto Jesus at chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, and here we see this doctrine in Christ. Which reads, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, <clears throat> excuse me, enter the uh, holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. On the Day of Atonement, under the Old Covenant, the high priest would lay hands on the sacrificial goat and confess the sins of the people and send the goat off into the wilderness. That is what would be on the mind of the recipients of this letter when they read about laying on of hands. It didn't have anything to do with some of the laying on of hands we see in the book of Acts. This has to do with the thing that they would be most familiar with. Given the context of sacrifice in this book, and even in the previous chapter, this alone makes sense of the text. And these sacrifices and rituals had to happen repeatedly at various intervals depending on the sacrifice offered. Once again, Jesus changes everything. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No more laying on of hands. The ancient Old Covenant Israelites had a general, though vague, notion of resurrection, one that would take place at the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 20-21 promises that Jesus' resurrection is the basis for eternal life, 
here and hereafter. Keeping in mind that eternal life begins here and now for those that are born again. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. In the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, we get a sense of the eternal <coughs> judgment of God. In chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, Jesus is the mediator in the presence of God who judges as he fills this doctrine as well. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If God permits, these Hebrew Christians will go on to maturity. The maturity that Christ represents in each of those, quote, elementary doctrines of Christ to which they were attempting to lay again, for whatever reason, for whatever suffering they were, trying to deal with suffering, trying to deal with sin, etc., through that understanding. It isn't just that they were tempted to go back at all. They were already still stuck in and might have gone back all the way. If God permits, the third verse says, these Hebrew Christians will go on to maturity. Maturity is always the work of God. It is an eminently surgical work with these folks because it was easy in their minds. Okay? If you're not with us still, get with us now. It was easy in their minds to maintain some minimal type of Christian existence because what they were coming from was so connected to what they were becoming. F.F. Bruce concludes that it was possible for them, quote, to give up more and more of those features of faith and practice which were distinctive of Christianity and yet to feel that they had not abandoned the basic principles of repentance and faith. We can fool ourselves and put a lot of work into maintaining a minimal Christian existence. We can for a while put off the mental and spiritual weighty feeling of distance from God by foolishly encouraging ourselves by persisting in minimal Christian thought and culture. We can for a while put off the mental and spiritual weighty feeling of distance from God by foolishly encouraging ourselves by persisting in minimal Christian thought and culture. I read my Bible now and again. I go to church most Sundays. I pray sometimes. I take the Lord's Supper. In our modern technological age, we might say, I email Jesus. I check out his Facebook posts. I text him occasionally. I send him a smiley emoji. I agree with a lot of the things he says. I retweet his tweets. Have you poured out your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you brag about him in the appropriate settings? Do you ever linger in thoughts of him suffering and moaning on the cross, drenched his own blood, Wrestling there all alone with death so that you won't have to. Do 
we deeply long to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Have you ever pleaded with the Holy Spirit, please, show me more of Jesus. I don't love Him like He deserves. My heart is too often divided. Oh, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus through Your Word to me. Or I perish. The election is Tuesday. Shall we say, Republican majority, the hope of glory? Democrat majority, the hope of glory? Or Christ in you, the hope of glory? Cover that next slide, please. Do we have a Where's Waldo Christian life? Where's Jesus? Where's Waldo is a years-old compilation of drawings of very crowded and busy situations in chaotic environments. Maybe a circus or a sporting event or a Disney crowd. And the challenge is to find Waldo. The guy with glasses and the red and white striped shirt in the midst of all the other eye-straining images. Okay, And so, you know, there's the big arrow. There he is, right? You see him up there. If God permits, Jesus will be easily identifiable in our lives. The last slide, please. About that picture, by the way, in, in 2001, forensic anthropologist Richard Neve created a model of a, a Galilean man for a BBC documentary, The Son of God, working on the basis of an actual skull found in the region. He did not claim it was Jesus' face. It was simply meant to prompt people to consider Jesus as, a, as being a man of his time and place. Since... We are never told he looked distinctive, and so that's sort of what the average Galilean man would look like. The Hebrew situation may be unique, but we can learn from it. But it will require leaving those practices and attitudes that are minimally Christian and going on to maturity. A mature apprehension of Christ and a mature faith that stands the tests and trials. This we shall do if God permits. Amen. I'll have the choir come up, please. The worship team leads us in our last hymn. Next week, verses 4 through the rest of the book, which we needed this week for especially.